During the uh, 30-odd years that I've been uh, sort of actively walking the Christian walk, I've gone through phases of where I've liked different um, Gospels. Like, I mean, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. You know, in the early days, I, even before I was a Christian, I used to love John's Gospel. I used to love the, you know, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and through him all things were made. It was just, there was just the, I think it was just the beautiful uh, poetry of the uh, of John's gospel and it, it attracted me and uh, you know now I lo- at other times I've loved Matthew because of the, the Sermon on the Mount and the, the profound teaching in there which has never been equaled by by any other preacher um, and and preaching through Luke this time you know there's, there's so much to love about Luke's gospel especially uh, the, the parables the the lost sheep, the lost coin, you know, the lost son, um, and and for a, you know a terrible sinner like all of us, who wouldn't love the the parable of the Pharisee and the uh, and the tax collector, you know, the, where the world is turned upside down, and 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 Jesus says that that this this terrible sinner is actually preferred by God above this proud but righteous man. But I think <coughs> one of the things I love about Mark's gospel is those small, seemingly insignificant little bits that don't seem to have much theological um, importance. And yet there they are. Uh, like like the, the bit in chapter 14 where there's a young man wearing a linen, uh, nothing but a linen, linen cloth and the soldiers went to arrest him and grabbed his cloth and pulled it off and he ran away naked. You know, I don't know why Mark put that bit in his gospel, but it, it, it kind of adds to its, um, you, know, you know, the eyewitness part of it. It's, it's like, you know, this person was actually really there and saw that happen. Uh, and another, another bit of Mark's gospel that is kind of I want to read to you because it's a background to today's reading. About three, three or four years ago, in the other place, we uh, we were preaching through Mark's gospel, <coughs> and I had to preach on this bit in chapter ten. And it was like, it was an experience I'd never had before. It was like a piece, a piece of heaven fell down on top of me, as I read just this verse thirty-two, which really I must have read dozens of times before, but never even noticed. But it's one of the, the joys of being a preacher or, or a student of the Bible is that every now and again God just does something that, that opens a piece of scripture to you. And, and it just says this. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. And... As I read that, suddenly it was like I was there on the road with them, leading on the road leading into Jericho, a dusty road in, in Palestine, with Jesus, his face set towards Jerusalem, out in front, and behind him these nervous and uncertain disciples who were astonished, the word says, 
uh, amazed, I think the, the ESV says. Because, why were they amazed? Because Jesus had told them, and in fact he was about to tell them again why he was going to Jerusalem. He was going there to die. Why are you doing this? You know, stay away. It would be the obvious thing to do, stay away. And then behind them was a, another group of, they were just called followers. And they were afraid. Because if that's what they're going to do to the leader, what will they do to his hangers-on? But far from sort of creeping in the back way, as you would expect Jesus might do, or perhaps mingle in with the crowd, instead he has this entrance that we just read about today in Luke 19. It's just a bold thing to do, wasn't it? To, he's, not, he's not trying to hide away. He's, he's holding himself up and saying, here I am, come and get me. Um, we read in John's Gospel that at this stage the religious leaders had told uh, the people that if you know where Jesus is, you come and tell us because we want to arrest him. And yet here he is riding into town and doing nothing at all to hide himself. It was a, but it was a deliberate act. He was doing this for a good reason and because it was a statement of, he was making a statement of who he is. Um, by riding on a donkey, um, I mean he'd always walked up till now, hadn't he? Everywhere he went he walked, but suddenly he's riding on a donkey and fulfilling this prophecy of Zechariah, a, a prophecy that was apparently so well known among the people that Luke and, uh, uh, Luke and uh, uh, Mark don't even bother telling us about it. They just assume that we know it. Uh, Matthew and John both say that that was what, uh, what they were uh, uh, you know, both Matthew and John both tell the prophecy of Zechariah and say this is why Jesus did it. Zechariah prophesied in chapter 9, See, daughter of Jerusalem, your king comes to you righteous, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There's just so many rich words in just in that short sentence. King, righteous, gentle and having salvation. And riding into not in, not into Rome or or Athens or Babylon or any of the great cities of the of the ancient Near East, but riding into Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of God. And so the people watching would have been in no doubt at all what was happening here. That, that, I mean, they weren't stupid. They'd seen all the stuff that. The, the signs that Jesus had done, and they'd heard his, heard his teaching, um, and and I just want to remind you of how Jesus changed everything around. Like this wasn't this wasn't just some minor, um, although great preacher and good moral man who'd come through. He tipped the whole world upside down, everywhere he went. I mean, just before this, we had the uh, story that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector, as we mentioned before a parable that they could relate to, the, the proud taken down 
and the, the, the humble sinner lifted up. Who wouldn't love that? The, the, and before, just before that, the little children exalted. Let the little children come to me and don't hinder them. The rich ruler sent away empty. Blind Bartimaeus, an outcast of society, reduced to begging for his living. He can see. And Zacchaeus, the tax collector, has his world turned upside down. No, not upside down, turned the right way up. So once again, Jesus has been showing the people what the kingdom of God was like. Sickness, no more. Sinners forgiven. The rich, the proud, sent away empty. And Satan driven out. But of course, the kingdom has got to have a king. And the people following, the people coming along with Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the ground, they, they had no doubt at all who that was. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But for some time the disciples had been convinced that, that Jesus was the Messiah. They, they just knew it. And the king of Israel, he, he, he was the king of Israel, the one we've been waiting for in the line of David. But they'd often been frustrated because Jesus didn't do what a king was supposed to do. You know, he didn't even wear it. He didn't even own a sword, let alone wear one. Kings were, that's not what a king was supposed to be like. But now here he is, for once, doing what the Messiah was supposed to do. And when Zechariah prophesied, see, daughter of Jerusalem, your king comes to you, the king he was talking about, of course, was the Messiah. And so even though Luke and Mark don't, don't mention this prophecy, the people with Jesus knew exactly what it meant. The Messiah has come at last. And so they rolled out the red carpet in the form of their cloaks. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, the crowd gets more and more excited and they praise God joyfully because of all the stuff that they'd seen him do. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's an odd thing to say, isn't it? I would expected him to say peace on earth, the same as the angels did at the birth of Jesus. But peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But the anger in heaven against sinners is about to be atoned for. Propitiated, I think, is the right word. The long war about the long war against God is about to end, or at least it's about to have the beginning of the end. Of course, the uh, the Pharisees also knew what this meant, and they didn't like it. The one thing they knew for certain is that Jesus definitely wasn't the Messiah. He didn't fit their idea of a Messiah at all. I mean, how, how, could a, how could a real Messiah, if he, Jesus was really the Messiah, how could he tell this upright, godly, rich man that he, was, he lacked something and then go and have lunch with this terrible tax collector, Zacchaeus? So they knew for certain that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. And so all this shouting and praising God and 
and saying Hosanna in the highest and, and welcoming him like a king. That, to them, that was just blasphemy. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus knows that this is God's work and he says if they don't say it, then the stones will. The stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, If even you, you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. In 72 AD, after a rebellion by some Jewish zealots, the might of the Roman army came against Jerusalem. Not just to, to recapture it, but to teach a lesson to anybody else who might have the same idea. And Jesus could see this coming. He knew this was going to happen. If they, if they chose to reject God's Messiah, then they were rejecting God himself. And the consequences of that are never good. So much pain and suffering was coming to the Jews and they would be scattered among the nations a persecuted people. Does he exult over his enemy's defeat though? No. He weeps. And he longs for it to be not so. But for now, Jesus has some more scripture to fulfil. The prophet Malachi had said, Suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Well, Jesus fulfilled that prophecy in many ways. I mean, our bodies, he said, are, are his temple. And then he went on to say, but who can endure his coming? But in today's passage, we've got this dramatic fulfilment the Lord has come to his temple in Jerusalem and he doesn't like what he sees. I suppose the selling of the animals and the food for eating and for sacrifices, it, it probably started out as a good thing. The money changes, you know, so that people from other countries could change their money and buy their, their dove for a sacrifice. But then money corrupts and the profit margins crept up. And the Pharisees wanted their cut. But Jesus cleared them all out, tipped them over. We, it, it's not, not hard to imagine just how this would have upset the apple cart, so to speak. You know, this sort of thing had been going on for, for a long time and Jesus comes in there and just with the authority that he, he had from his father, he just cleaned it out. And every day as he was teaching at the temple, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. But they couldn't find any way to do it because all the people hung on their words. 
You know, I, I just finished reading a, a three-part biography of, of Winston Churchill, and he was a man who was famous for his speeches. And the people of England really did hang on his every word as he carried them through, in effect, the, the Second World War. But one of the things that I, I hadn't really realised about Churchill was that he would spend weeks preparing for a speech. He would, even one, you know, some of his famous lines, we will fight them on the beaches, all that stuff. He would agonise over it for days beforehand and just change one word here and there. His speech writer driving his, uh, his speech, his uh, secretary mad by all the time changing words until he had it exactly right. And yet, when he said it, it sounded like he'd only just thought of it. But Jesus wasn't like that. He really did just... The words came out of him because they were God's words. People hung on his every word. And so much so that the Pharisees and those who wanted to arrest him just couldn't do it because they know that, that the people would have rebelled. Well, what are we to make of of this, which was a traditional Palm Sunday reading. I mean, Jesus has come riding into town here in our hearts. And I guess we're in the same position. Are we going to reject him like the Pharisees and say, well, he doesn't fit my idea of my king. He's not, not the sort of king I want because I'm in charge of my own life. Or do we cheer him on and proclaim him, yes, Jesus, I want you, you're the Messiah, but then turn on him like the people did a few days later and like we've seen, sadly, some very high-profile high Christians doing. Sometimes they don't actively disown him, but they just quietly start preaching a different gospel. Or will you bear the disgrace of being a follower of a man who's been hated and rejected? He is a jealous God who will not take well to his people who profess to love him if they give their affections to the things of this world instead. He just won't let it happen. Because this is his temple. And he will drive out the things that, that, that distract us from his holy way. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who travel on that road. But the way is narrow and the going is hard on the road that leads to life and there are few that find it. You know, he said to, uh, as he looked out over Jerusalem, he said, if you, even you, had only known on the day, what would bring you peace? Well, that's saying that to each one of us. If, if only we could recognise the times, if we could recognise the man the one who will bring us peace because we go looking for peace in so many other, we go looking for happiness, we go looking for joy in all the wrong places and there it is right in front of us. 
But when we reject him, the same as Jerusalem, now it is hidden from our eyes. As we join now in, uh, in remembering what Jesus has done for us, the things he taught us, the things he did in dying for us, let us share in, in these things that remind us of his body and blood that was, that was given so freely for us. Don't just take it as a matter of habit. Use this time to put yourself on that road coming into Jerusalem and see the Messiah. Remember what he did for us, how he died, how he rose again. Amen.